welcome to the ASCD Connect podcast, supporting you on your journey as a life-changing educator. Here's your host for today's program. Hi, everyone. I'm Anthony Rabora, the Chief Content Officer for ASCD ISTE. Many schools have been struggling with an increase in student behavior issues, and there's been a growing backlash against community-oriented conflict resolution approaches to school discipline, like restorative justice. Is this backlash justified, or do we need a deeper understanding and better implementation of restorative practice? To discuss these issues, I'm joined today by Dr. Jamila Dugan, who is a leadership development coach and the co-author of the influential book, Street Data, a next-generation model for equity, pedagogy, and school transformation. She is also a frequent contributor to educational leadership, and she has a compelling article in the November 2023 issue of the magazine entitled, Don't Give Up on Restorative Practice. Welcome, Jamila. It's great to talk to you again. It is so nice to be with you, Anthony. Thank you for having me. Great. So can you briefly describe what restorative practice in school discipline is or what it means to you? Yeah, thanks for that question. So when I think about restorative practice, first, I'm going to just give you a couple of words that come to my mind and then elaborate a little bit. So when I think about restorative practice, the words that come to my mind are calm, healing, accountability, community, love. Those are the words that come to my mind. When you consider restorative practice in terms of discipline, it takes into account holism, a holistic way of looking at situations, people, and communities. And this is both rooted in indigenous ways of knowing and being. It's also rooted in Afrocentric ways of knowing and being. And really, it's rooted in a lot of collectivist cultures in which when you're trying to address an issue, and this is only one element, I'm talking about responding to discipline. I just want to name restorative practice has to do with a lot of different things. But when you're talking about discipline, it's about restoring harmony. How do we create harmony in our community? How did that harmony become unbalanced? And what do we need to do to try to address that so that everyone can be a full community member, essentially? That's kind of how I think of it. That's wonderful. So in your article, you write that as an approach to creating more positive school cultures, restorative practice was gaining some popularity in the years shortly before the pandemic, but that that since has changed and it's now facing a lot more resistance. So what happened? Yeah, I love this question because as I wrote about in the article, I mean, restorative practice was everywhere when I was in the school building and I was a school leader. I was so excited by all these different resources that I was being given. But when I think about the answer to this question, I kind of think about our larger landscape, our social political landscape right now. If you hear any kind of mayoral candidate or anyone running for office, I've been watching a lot of uh, mayor's races, you're going to hear a lot of conversation about getting tougher on crime. There's a lot of crime happening and we need to address that. And this is very similar to what has happened in schools, because if you remember a few years ago, especially when there was a lot of changing in the criminal justice system, there was a whole focus on restoration and trying to address inequities that were happening in communities related to criminal justice. Mm -hmm. And in the political discourse at this point, we're back to this conversation around tough on crime. That's the same thing that's happening in schools. Essentially, we have had a whole bunch of things happen as a result of the pandemic kids being out of school, lots of stress, isolation, lots of different things that have happened. And also, as a result of the pandemic, we've had students who have been able to be exposed to so much creative freedom. 
and understanding that they have more agency than they thought they had, really a lot more questioning of authority. And so both of those things, both the tough things and the things that I think are actually pretty productive, have kind of come together and made things in reality pretty challenging. But instead of us being like, oh, we should have expected this to happen, or even not, even if we didn't expect it, instead of us being like, whoa, okay, what is happening? What is the kind of world we want to live in or the kind of school building we want to live in, similar to what I talk about in Radical Dreaming? What does harmony look like after we've all been a part of this collective experience? We do what we most of the time do, kind of fall into equity traps and tropes. And we're like, we got to fix it. Tough on crime, same thing in schools, not necessarily no more restoration, but accountability, accountability, accountability. And that looks like going back to more punitive kind of consequences, not accountability through restoration, which I think, um, honestly, Anthony, is a misconception people have in restorative practice. Well, that's a good good segue. So you say in the article that many educators have misconceptions about restorative practice, and that's partly what led to the backlash. Um, so can you give an example of that? Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah. So restorative practice is super rooted in accountability, but accountability, again, from the lens of full humanity, community, love. And so when you think about, this is an assumption or a misconception that I've seen people have. If you do restorative practice, you're trying to avoid suspensions for students. You're trying to avoid addressing challenging behavior with students. You just want students to feel good kind of a thing. You are trying to excuse behavior from students. And the excusing of the behavior ends up looking like we're calling the restorative justice coordinator here. They'll handle it. And typically they'll maybe spend time in the office with that person and build a relationship with them. And then folks see it as excusing behavior. But with those folks who are the best restorative practice practitioners, when they bring a student into the office, sure, there might be some water or snacks involved, but there is a conversation about What took place? Why did it take place? What harm was caused? What were you thinking about? What impact did that have on other people? And it doesn't stop with the conversation. The next part is how do we rectify the harm? And again, I just want to name, I'm only talking about discipline right now. I want to give you a very specific example with a school that I worked with. There was a student who was writing racial slurs in the bathrooms, Mm -hmm. racial slurs frequently. It took them a while to figure out who the student was. But once they did, they did a couple of different things. They did do a restorative circle with the student, but I just want to say they did restorative circles every week. It wasn't just a restorative circle as a result of the behavior, but they did a restorative circle and asked the student to share with kind of everyone kind of what what, what they were thinking when they did this act. And other students were allowed to share the impact it had on them. Now, the teachers here have spent a lot of time building their practice around restorative justice. And so I don't want to make it seem like anyone can just jump into this, but they did a restorative circle. They brought the family in with, and they didn't actually bring the family into the school. The principal, the vice principal went to the home of the family to just talk about the impact it had on them, learning that their student had been a part of a situation like this and kind of talked about resources that might be useful to the student. And then finally, they asked the student how they could, again, restore harmony to the environment. And so the student decided that he was going to learn about several different important figures in the Black community in this example, and then create an art project to be able to be displayed all across the school. And this was a project that took quite a while because what he did was so significant. 
And so in restorative practice, again, it wasn't about just having a conversation with him and having him feel good. I think he ultimately did feel good in this process, but it was really about accountability on multiple levels, but kind of wrapping their arms around the particular student. Okay. That's a really interesting. So in cases where schools have gotten away from that type of restorative practice, what can they do now to build more authentic and responsive systems like the one like you're talking about and what you write about? Yeah. So I'll be really concrete in terms of something we already have available to us. Folks love curriculum and I believe curriculum can be very useful. Frameworks can be very useful. One of the frameworks that I appreciate the most is responsive classroom. But let me tell you something about responsive classroom. When I was a school leader at our school, it was said that we are responsive classroom school. And this is similar to what you hear about restorative practice. And I'm bringing up responsive classroom because it has very tight connections to restorative practice. But when I went, I was like, well, what does this mean? Because I don't really see practices anywhere, right? Again, similar to restorative practice. So I grabbed an instructional coach and asked them to tell me more. And it was really actually only happening in their class. So I was like, well, how do I find out more? So there was a whole bunch of restorative practice books on my shelf. And you know what I did, Anthony? I know this sounds tongue in cheek. I read them. I sat and I read all of it. And I was able to pull out specific elements of responsive classroom. It wasn't just morning meeting. It was around guided modeling. It was about the tone and the words that you use with students. It was about all of these different elements. And so after I read that and internalized, really studied that, then I started to say, okay, where do these practices need to show up in our classrooms, in our PD, and so on and so on. And one of the most powerful things I think that came out of doing that study with responsive classroom was when I worked with families actually to look at what we were proposing for proactive or responsive strategies to behavior and seeing families with IEP say to me like, hey, you're actually missing the boat in a couple of different areas. So anyway, I say all that to say that schools that are interested in trying to do or trying to move toward a more restorative practice approach, I think you can identify one thing you want to read really deeply. Don't read five or 10 things um, or one area of study and just work in getting that one right. And with responsive classroom, that first place is the power of words. It's not morning meeting. It's the power of words. If we could get right how we talk to students, that would set us on a wonderful foundation for restorative practice. Great. Yeah, it makes a big difference. So you also emphasize in your article that building these genuine systems of restorative practice takes time and a lot of reflective and listening work within the school community. So I was curious, what's your advice to a teacher who really needs help fast, who is struggling with serious behavioral issues in the classroom, and they don't feel like they can wait for the kind of cultural transformation you're referring to? What can they do? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. So I think I'm going to answer that and I mean every word that I'm going to say. And I also am not going to let go that it will take broader time, right? Like over to be really good at the practice, it does take time. Now, there are things that we can do immediately. These may be satisfying. They may not be, but I promise you they work. When you are in a situation when you are having extremely challenging behavior, you need a partner. And that partner can be either your school leader, if you have that relationship, 
a teacher that's near you. It can even be someone outside of school, but you have to be able to take care of yourself in these situations. You may use the right words, but because it's new, right? And you've been having such a hard time, students don't respond right away. You need to be able to tag out and tagging out can be in the school day. And that literally means like, I need a break if you have that kind of structure and opportunity, but tagging out can also be right after the school day. And so you have to like literally move yourself out of the space and kind of take care and kind of process and kind of give yourself some room to be human around what is happening in your classroom. I do not want to pretend like challenging behavior does not occur, but I think the taking care of ourselves first is important. Being in a situation where a student is actually misbehaving, there's a form of care that you can do there as well. You don't always have to respond right away. I'm going to give you a moment right now because you are clearly upset and I also need a moment. Please give me a moment and then I'm going to come back and I'm going to respond or we'll come back and we'll address the situation together. Those moments can also look like, even if you don't take a physical space, that moment also might look like, hey, we're having a really difficult time right now trying to navigate. Let's just step out in the hallway so we can talk. But I want you to notice, Anthony, all of my language is not about responding to misbehavior, get, you know, fixing the situation. It's all about trying to take a moment, a little bit of time to try to create a little bit of space and opportunity for either my care of myself or the care of myself and a student so that I can respond a little bit better. And then after that, I would say, you know, whatever current strategies you're supposed to be using that you've developed by yourself or are in tandem with your school, I think you rely on. But a lot of us, when we get into that place of super challenging behavior, we're not really able to see a way out. And so I really believe the tagging in and out with a partner is really useful. And then taking a moment to find care for yourself or space between you and a student can be useful as well. So those are really incremental steps towards a larger restorative yeah. practice and that, that practice of care. It's interesting. Yeah. So what's one thing you hope that school leaders will take from your article and the message you're trying to convey? I think the primary message is in the title. Don't give up. There will be so many things that tell us to give up on restorative practice, on addressing inequity with students and families. And if we do that, we undermine everything. Those of us, at least that say we are equity centered, say we care about. Because when we go to the surveys, to the empathy interviews, the listening sessions, the focus groups, it is a resounding pattern, trend, message that we have heard from families that the way that we approach behavior and discipline is not aligned to what they're looking for. And there's been a resounding, again, message that what we're looking for is you to see me through my full humanity that you hold me accountable, but again, through my full humanity and that you create an environment where there is harmony, there is love, and we can all thrive. So please, please, please do not give up. Are you optimistic about the future of restorative practice in schools? Do you think the tide can be reversed as schools continue to grapple with these issues? In terms of if I'm optimistic, what I will say is this, there are folks in the trenches every single day about the restorative practice life. They live it, they breathe it, they are embodied people. And those folks give me optimism. And I get more optimistic when I see those folks, leadership, expertise, being valued, affirmed, and compensated. 
there are folks all over the place that have answers for us around restorative practice. And every question you even ask me how to handle this in the classroom when it's the most challenging for school leaders, professional learning, all of that. And my optimism lives in those who are living and breathing and trying to carry this work forward. And it is my hope that with this article, I was able to just give voice to the things that they say to me all the time so that others don't give up on the things that they've been calling for for so long. That's a great message. So Dr. Jamila Dugan, thanks so much for taking the time to share your insights with us. It's a really important and interesting topic. And thanks to all our listeners for tuning in. To read Jamila Dugan's article in the November 2023 issue of Educational Leadership, go to www.ascd.org.